Last week it was good to sit out there with you and hear the word preached by Todd. That was a blessing to me. I've been gone all week in Houston at General Assembly, and at some point I hope to and would love to report to you on what's going on uh, across our denomination. Uh, every year we have an annual denomination-wide meeting, and this year it was in Houston. So your elders were gracious enough to let me go down to that meeting, and I got back last Friday night, and so Todd was able to fill in for me on Sunday. It was a, it was a blessing to sit out there with you and receive the word last week. I don't get to do that a whole lot, and believe it or not, I need the exact same thing you do. I really do. I can't, I can't continue to live my life without being preached to and without me being poured into. It, it doesn't work. I'm exactly the same as you. I'm a fellow believer that needs to hear God's word and be taught his word. So thank you for letting me sit out there last week. It was a blessing. I'm going to read to you the first 19 verses of this chapter, and I would remind you, this is a portion of a letter from home. This is God's word to you. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this, say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt, tied it, tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and sat on it. And he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they had come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to it to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Let's pray together.
Our Father, as we gather here today, we ask that you might take this word and bring it to bear on our lives. Help us to understand it. Help us to know what it means. Help us to know how we are to live by it. Help us to see our Savior here for the first time or for the 10 millionth time. Help us to not just see our Savior, but embrace Him, trust Him, rest in Him, and desire to obey Him and follow Him in everything that we say and do and think. Lord, may we have no higher ambition than to belong to You. And may we have no higher ambition that you do with us whatever brings you glory. Help us, Lord. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen. As you can see in the bulletin this morning, we're supposed to cover this entire 11th chapter. It's a big chapter, and a lot has happened. And perhaps you haven't been here for a few weeks or haven't heard anything thus far in the Gospel of Mark. So I want to give you the big picture of what's going on here. We have now entered in chapter 11, we have entered the last week of the life of Jesus. Chapters 11 through 15 are known as the passion section, where Jesus is going to the cross to be crucified. Chapter 16 is about the resurrection. So we really are looking at now for the next number of weeks, we are going to look at the last few days on earth of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In this chapter, you'll notice that Jesus is in the temple during the day. He's in Jerusalem during the day, and he is at Bethany at night. Yes, this chapter covers actually a few days. Verses 1 through 11 are actually telling you what happens on Sunday. If you look, you'll notice that verses 12 through 19 tell you what happens on the next day, which is Monday. And then verses 20 and following all the way through into chapter 13 tells us what happens on Tuesday. So you see we're going to be looking at a Sunday, we're going to be looking at a Monday, and we're going to be looking at a Tuesday. And here's the takeaway. This is what I want you to know as we go through this and then as you leave. As we leave and go out these doors and into the world and fulfill the callings that God has for us this week, this is the takeaway. I want you to see that this passage is the solution for all of your problems, for the entirety of your life. This passage is the solution for anything that's happened in your past, for anything that will happen in the future. This passage is the solution if we're trying to figure out what does God want me to do individually or what does he want from us as a church. This is it. That's what I want you to leave with. So now you might drift off and then come back at some point. See a couple people laugh, so they're going to do that. Just kidding. But I want you to know this chapter, this section really is a solution. And we're going to get at this solution by eating a sandwich together. Did you notice that in the bulletin? Have a sandwich as the first point? Yeah. You see, scholars have identified that Mark has a particular literary style. It's called a Markin sandwich. And we're going to bite into this sandwich together. You see, this, this is what the mean. This is what it means. 
Mark has a way of writing in which he is telling you a story, and then in the middle of telling you a story, he interjects something that seems completely irrelevant, and then he goes back to the original story. You might notice that when we looked at chapter 5 together, there was a man that came to Jesus because he wanted someone to be healed. Jesus begins to follow this man, and then Mark interjects a completely different story right into the middle of that story, and then he goes back to Jesus going to that man's house to heal his loved one. Some scholars say that there are at least nine sandwiches that Mark gives us in his gospel. So you see, this is a way that Mark is writing because he wants us to understand, here's the main story, and oftentimes he interjects another story, as we'll see, because that story that you don't think is related, that we don't think is related when we first read it, is actually interpreting the big story, the first story. So let's dive in. Let's not only dive in, how about we just take off a big bite together. We're going to look at the temple, and then we're going to look at the tree. Remember, at the end of chapter 10, Jesus has healed blind Bartimaeus. Remember that question? I don't want you to forget this question. Jesus asked him the same question he asked us, what do you want me to do for you? Remember that? Can't forget that question. Blind Bartimaeus knows that it's Jesus. He cries out and says something very special to identify Jesus. He says, Jesus, son of David. Remember that? He is identifying for you, he's identifying for me that Jesus is connected to David, the greatest king that Israel ever had. He wants us to know that Jesus that's alive and living and and, and on the earth at this time, that, that he really is One that has come from the line of David. Jesus is the Messiah. And as the Messiah, he functions as a king. He is a king. But he's not like an earthly earthly king. He's much different than one we typically think of. He's a servant king. But here's what's shocking about that statement that blind Bartimaeus makes. Jesus doesn't tell him to be quiet, does he? Now, if you've been here for a number of weeks... I told you I was going to come back to this at some point, and here's the time. I skimmed back through the Gospel of Mark the last couple days. I found 10 instances in which someone said something about Jesus or observed his healing, and Jesus says, be quiet or don't tell anyone. Have you remembered some of that? Jesus does this amazing healing, and people want to go shout about it, and he says, no, not yet. Keep it quiet. Well, here, at the end of chapter 10, This man yells out repeatedly, Jesus, you are the Messiah and you are the King. And there's a huge crowd that's following Jesus. A huge crowd. And Jesus doesn't tell him to be quiet. Jesus doesn't deny that he's King. It's just the first time that he is admitting it and accepting it and living that way publicly so that everyone should know I am king. It cannot be quiet any longer. It's time. You see, that's all very important information. Because here comes the king. The king has been moving toward Jerusalem. There are all these phrases that we've highlighted over the past number of weeks. On his way. In the journey. 
And here it is. The king is coming into Jerusalem. The king is coming to Jerusalem. Now what that means for us, as we already know a little bit of this, is that he's going to die. But not everybody realized that at this point, you see. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and that prompts the question, as we read in the first couple verses, there's without doubt question that Jesus and his disciples had this conversation. Okay, Jesus, we're getting ready to come into Jerusalem. We've got this massive crowd following. What do you want us to do? Jesus, you're the king. We've just heard this announcement from blind Bartimaeus who now can see. He's with us. He's declared this. You haven't denied it. You haven't told him to be quiet. We're going into Jerusalem. What do you want us to do? Because it's time to make a big splash. It's time to make a big pronouncement. It's time to do something huge. And Jesus says, you're exactly right. Go get me a colt. Go get me a donkey. And he lays out for the disciples how they're to do it. It's quite supernatural, isn't it? Jesus says, go into the town and you'll find this colt here and you'll untie it and people ask you what you're doing and you just tell them the Lord needs it. It's almost like a code, you know. You walk into somebody and you're like, look, we need this animal. Well, why? It's my animal. Well, the Lord needs it. Oh, Gotcha. Take it. They find the donkey exactly as Jesus said. They untie it. They bring it to Jesus. He gets on top of it, and he rides into the city. People are putting down branches and leaves and coats and all kinds of things. Right? Remember that? And Jesus comes in, and people are shouting, Hosanna means God save. God save me now. They're proclaiming, Hosanna in the highest. In other words, this God saved, this gift of God, this salvation comes from heaven. It originates in heaven. It's wonderful to think through that. And Jesus enters in. Now here's what you may not know about that proclamation, what you might not know about Jesus coming in on a donkey. People in the first century know a lot of Bible. They don't always get the interpretation right. It's kind of like 20 or so years ago, John 3.16 was common, right? 30 years ago, that was common. You can't assume that anymore. People don't know John 3.16 anymore. But in Jesus' day, a lot of people knew prophecies of the one that was coming, they didn't interpret it properly. They didn't understand everything with it. It wasn't clear in their minds, but they knew some language that was describing what it would look like for the Savior, for the Messiah to come. One of those passages is in Zechariah. You know, one of those books that I'm sure you've just read hundreds of times and just know like the back of your hand. Zechariah 9 talks about the Messiah coming and entering Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. It talks about how he was coming to bring healing to the nations. How the Messiah was coming to restore peace. How the Messiah was come to extend his kingdom from shore to shore. It was a really glorious passage. An incredibly powerful description of the Messiah. 
And Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and it would have connected in people's minds, oh, the Scripture, Zechariah 9, this is him. This is the Messiah. This is Jesus. And that's why they're shouting and proclaiming. There's great joy as Jesus enters Jerusalem. People are excited. And it's not exactly the way that you might think he would enter. But it's an exact fulfillment of God's word. Whether people understood it completely or not, we know they didn't. Whether we get it or not, we don't always do. But the point is, is this is God's plan. And his Messiah is coming into Jerusalem and he is fulfilling his word. God is fulfilling the word that he has made hundreds of years before Jesus came. Hundreds of years. Well, Jesus enters Jerusalem. And at the end of the day, you read verse 11. Listen to this. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Kind of anticlimactic, isn't it? I mean, isn't it kind of weird that there's all kinds of shouting and joy and, and that people are saying, Hosanna, and people are putting down branches and coats. And then Jesus kind of leisurely goes into the temple, surveys the scene, gets the panoramic view, and it's the end of the day, so he leaves. There's a sense here in which this is incredibly anticlimactic and Jesus is incredibly underwhelmed. You see, he's been to the temple before. Even as early as 12, right? Those of you that know the scriptures a little bit more. Jesus knows what it's like to go to the temple. He knows what it's like to learn. He knows what it's like to see teachers of the law there. And this time, it's just kind of I surveyed the scene. Yeah, time to leave. I've had a long day. Well, the next day, Jesus enters the temple. He enters the temple, and what he finds is a booming place. Now, he is not really excited about it, but business is booming in the temple. During this time of year, Jerusalem swelled from about 50,000 people to a quarter of a million. There's people everywhere. It was a special time of the year where people gathered for sacrifices. And Jesus comes into the temple, and whatever he does, which we'll look at in a moment, I've got to punctuate this for you because this is exactly what Mark does for us. We're going to look at the fact that Jesus cleanses. But I want you to see, look at verse 18. No matter what Jesus does, which we're going to look at, Whatever he did caused those who were in the temple, the religious leaders, to want to destroy him. Look at verse 18. They plotted together. They were seeking together how they might destroy him. Whatever he did was very disruptive. If you look at verse 27 and 28, which we didn't read, you even find that those that saw Jesus do what he did, were wanting to question where he got all this authority from. Where'd you get this authority from, Jesus? Jesus enters the temple. Please don't forget, please don't forget that the temple is a symbol of national identity for the Jews. 
Jesus comes into the temple, and it is a really big deal. It's a really important place. Jesus comes into the temple, and we, what, we must remember that it's not just the place of national identity for the Jews. The temple is that perpetual reminder to all of us that you cannot be apathetic when you come to meet with God. You just can't. You can't be apathetic when you're in God's house. You can't do it. You see, the temple was this elaborate facility. And just inside most of the main entrances was this place called the Court of the Gentiles. It was this place where non-Jews were allowed to be. And then in the innermost place of the temple was called the Holy of Holies. You see, there's only one person who could go in there. It was the high priest. And he could only do it one time a year. It was a place where sacrifices were offered. It was a place in which people met with God. And it was really important. Really important. You see, it's a reminder that we cannot approach God without sacrifice. You can't do it. You will never ever be able to come into God's presence without a sacrifice. Now you might wonder, well, that sounds a little strange. Just imagine this. Imagine as you live your life, perhaps you're going through this right now. Imagine that as you live your life, there's someone in your life that you get very close with. And that's happened for a variety of reasons. Perhaps they went through a crisis. Perhaps you went through a crisis. And whatever has happened in your life experience or their life experience, you got close. This could be a coworker, could be your boss, could be your neighbor, could be your family, could be your spouse. And you got really close with this person. But then after a period of time, they just kind of vanished. And they just stopped showing up. And there was no communication. There was no ongoing dialogue. It was just you have, you have been through whatever the dramatic, uh, serious, profound experience was. You've, you've been through that and you grew so close. And then for whatever reason, they're gone. And they're just gone. And then after a period of time, they actually show back up. And, and certainly you're relieved and excited to see them. But, but in the midst of being excited to see them, in the midst of being thankful that they've returned, you initiate the conversation of what happened. Now, we live in a day and age in which people just don't like to do that, right? They just want to forget things and just move on. Not worry about it. Get over it compartmentalize, whatever you want to say. But, but being the friend that you are, you want to talk about whatever happened. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have every detail, line by line, day by day, hour by hour. It just means that there's something that happened in the relationship because there was a gap where someone vanished. And in order for the relationship to actually move forward, some conversation needs to be had about what happened, right? And they may want to ignore that conversation, not have that conversation forever. But the point is, if you're going to have a real relationship, 
You need to have that conversation. You see, that's kind of a picture of us with God. God has established this relationship with us at creation. And we have walked with him and we're close with him. And then all of a sudden, we try to vanish. And we try to run away. We rebel. That sin, practically speaking, we have rebelled against God and tried to do our own thing. And God has initiated with us and brings us back. And he talks to us. And the relationship moves forward because we acknowledge, yes, God, I have left you. You didn't leave me. You're there. We had some great experiences together. You were with me in thick and thin. You blessed me, but I vanished. You're right. But God says, it's okay. That's the purpose of my grace. It's not okay in a way, but it's okay. Thank you for admitting Thank you for acknowledging. Now let's walk through life together. Let's grow together. Let's learn more together. Let's do life. Let's make decisions. Let's live together. You see, the temple was a reminder that we can't ever come to God without sacrifice. Because we are the ones that have left him. And in order for this relationship to work, God had to make a sacrifice in order for us to be reconciled. And he expects us, he expects me, he expects you to receive what he says, acknowledge what he says, admit that we have run, and receive his forgiveness, and receive his sacrifice, and promise by his grace to keep walking with him all the rest of our days. The temple was where that truth, the central truth of Christianity, was visibly seen. It was a picture for us of our life with God. You see, the problem was that business was booming so much that people couldn't worship. Business was booming so much that Jesus says, is it verse 17? Isn't it written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Business is booming so much that people cannot worship, they cannot pray. Verse 16 seems to indicate that people looked at the courtyard as a a shortcut to the other side of town. Jesus stopped them from bringing things through the courtyard. You see, God's house is supposed to be a place where all the nations are gathered together. It's supposed to be a place where people worship God and they see and recognize and glory in the fact that He has made a sacrifice for you. It's a place where people are supposed to pray. They're supposed to be able to Devote themselves to God, to meditate, to think, to ponder, to wrestle, to hear. And Jesus cleanses the temple because no one is worshiping. Jesus is not real happy, is he? God wants his people to draw people in 
God wants his people to hear the sacrifice and the significance of the sacrifice and to hear what the sacrifice means and go out. God wants his people to gather to worship and to praise him. But that's not what they're doing. You see, in the middle of all that is where Jesus interjects the story about the fig tree. You see, the first 11 verses are where he first enters Jerusalem in the temple. Then you've got the fig tree interjected in verse 12 through 15, 14. And then you have the temple again. And make no mistake, Jesus was upset. He entered the temple and he overturned tables and chairs. And I presume that there were people sitting on those chairs. He, he wasn't happy. And it's really important that we remember that. Because we don't get a lot of glimpses into the emotional life of our Savior. And we get to see here that he is really upset. And we get to think about why is it that he would be upset? Why is it would he overturn tables and chairs? Why is it that he would look at this tree and curse this tree? See, Jesus is interpreting what's happening with the temple. He's interpreting what's happening with us individually and with us as a church. And it's things that we have to think about individually. And we have to think about as a church. Because remember, this is really the solution to everything in our lives. It's really what God wants us to be about. There are two things that upset Jesus. Two things. And the first is, is Jesus upset with a lack of fruit? Listen, on the following day, verse 12, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance of fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him. Yes, if you look at verse 20 and 21, the fig tree dies. Yes, this is ultimately a picture and a foreshadowing of the destruction of the temple. But we'll wait till chapter 13 to get there. Jesus desires fruit. Jesus is upset that fruit isn't happening. It's absolutely true. Jesus wants you to bear fruit. He wants me to bear fruit. He wants our church to bear fruit. This is his vision for us. He wants us to bear fruit. He wants us to change. He wants our character to change. He wants those of us who struggle with lying to then turn and love the truth. Not just not lying, but loving the truth. He wants those of us that are very arrogant and self-centered to be changed so that we are a humble people and that we care and listen and we're not self-centered. We actually welcome people into our lives. God wants deep down change. It's not just that he wants simple obedience. It's not just that he wants outward obedience. He wants deep down change so we can be deep down good so that our lives show that we have been profoundly changed 
And it doesn't stop. He doesn't want you to be the same man at 40 that you were at 20. He doesn't want you to be the same mom that you were at 20 and at 50. He doesn't want you to be the same employee or employer you are as you were 10 years ago or 5 years ago. He wants you to grow. He wants me as a preacher to grow. He wants me to learn how to love more deeply. Jesus wants fruit in your life. Make absolutely no mistake about it. He wants you to change. And not only does he want you to bear fruit, he really wants you to worship. He wants you to be committed to giving your life to God. He wants you to be committed to hearing over and over and over again of what God has done for you through the work of Christ. He wants you to order your week so that you are regularly worshiping Him. He just does. You need it. I need it. He wants you to worship. He wants you to hear from Him. He wants you to think about what He says. He wants you to apply the words to your life and the truth to your life by the work of the Spirit. He wants you to worship. And maybe, maybe He wants you to pray. Maybe you've never done that before in your life. He wants you to talk with Him. He wants you to pray. Oftentimes it's one of those phrases we say, right? Someone is talking with us and we're like, yeah, well, I'll pray for you. But we don't really mean it. Well, Jesus means it. He wants us to pray, to really pray, to learn how to pray. And maybe you feel like you don't know how to pray, so you don't pray. Join the club. I don't know how to pray either. I'm learning. But pray. We can do nothing in life, nothing without prayer. We have no power without prayer. We need to pray. We need to be a praying people. Parents, you need to pray with your children. Sunday school teachers need to pray with those that are in your class. Adults, you need to pray in your small groups. You need to pray in Sunday school. You need to pray at home. You need to pray at work. We need to pray. There's nothing wrong with praying. Jesus is not saying, parade your prayer around everywhere you go so everybody knows you're praying. He wants you to pray. He wants you to talk to him. You see, the fact that Jesus wants us to worship and wants us to bear fruit, do you see it yet? Jesus wants us to pray and wants us to bear fruit. He wants us to worship and he wants us to bear fruit is put in contrast with what's going on in the temple. What's going on in the temple? Everybody is busy. And there is nothing really spiritual that's going on. The temple is supposed to be the place where you get to watch and see that God has made a sacrifice for your sins. It's supposed to be a place where the nations are brought in. 
and where they have a place to worship, where they have a place to learn, where they have a place to question, they have a place to meditate. And they're supposed to see that people are praying. And what's going on? Everybody's just busy. Jesus is upset that everybody is busy and nothing is really happening. Now realize in the church we need people to work. We need small group leaders. We need nursery workers. We heard that today, right? People have to do stuff in the church. Jesus is not denying that. We need workers. It's absolutely true. But if all we're about individually and all we're about collectively and all we're about as a church is just being busy, we're in deep trouble. We're in deep trouble. If your life is just busy and you're so busy that you can't worship and you're so busy that you can't pray and you're so busy that you can't be involved in people's lives, you're too busy. I'm too busy. Jesus wants us to worship and he wants us to bear fruit. And he doesn't want to live our lives as if all we need to do is just be busy. The other reason why Jesus is upset, it's not just that there is a lack of fruit. But Jesus, I think, is really upset with the reason why there's no fruit. Now hear this. We are responsible people. We are to take responsibility for our lives and our time and our schedules. Absolutely true. But Jesus is upset at the reason why fruit isn't happening. Did you notice when we read 12 through 14 together about Jesus seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf? Did you notice that? The scholars and specialists say, that in order for a fig tree to bear fruit in the end of May and the part of June that figs usually come about, something happens prior to that time. Around the end of March and April, which is where we are right here in Jerusalem at chapter 11, the fig tree actually produces leaves. That's what Jesus is highlighting for you. And you see, on the end of leaves, there's supposed to be these little green nodes. And ultimately, those turn into the figs that come in June. You see, this tree is grown, this tree has leaves, but there are no nodes. You know what that means? By the way, those nodes are supposed to be really delicious. Shovel scholars made mention of people in the first century who actually enjoyed eating the nodes more than they actually liked eating the figs. When Jesus saw the tree and he saw the leaves and he saw that it wasn't going to bring any fruit, what he saw is that the tree was diseased. He's upset at the disease that the tree has. That's why it's not going to bear any fruit. You see, our problem is that we are absolutely responsible. We are to schedule our time. We are to prioritize worship. We are to pray. We are to bear fruit. We are to strive to live for God. The problem is that we're diseased. And it's called sin. And that doesn't bring Jesus any joy at all. He's frustrated with sin. He's frustrated with the disease in your life. And the good news for you and the good news for me today 
is that the very reason why Jesus was going into Jerusalem is that he might be the answer for your sin and the answer for my sin. Going into Jerusalem to pay the penalty for your sin and my sin. He is going into Jerusalem to be the sacrifice. The one that ends all need for any other sacrifice. Beloved, the good news for you is that the only way that you're going to worship and prioritize your time and pray and bear fruit is that you're connected to Jesus. Is that you're connected with the Savior and you receive his sacrifice and you live in light of that sacrifice and the power that it brings. And by God's grace, may that never, ever grow old. May you never get tired of that. May I never get tired of that. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we know that you really desire that we are a worshiping people. You desire that we are a people who pray individually, collectively. You desire that fruit is born in our lives. And Lord Jesus, as much as you would press this truth into us that we need to worship and we need to bear fruit, you also remind us that you are the answer. We need to respond to you. We need to acknowledge that many times our priorities are out of whack, that many times we've lived days or weeks and we haven't prayed at all, and that we are not producing fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, the, the character-changing fruit, the deep-down fruit that you desire. But Jesus, in acknowledging that, help us to find your forgiveness and your power to change. Lord Jesus, we want to be a people who pray to you, who love you, who love to worship you, and who lo whose lives reflect that we know what it means to be diseased, and we know the solution. Jesus, would you help us this week to take inventory of our lives and to seek you, to bring our diseases to you and to beg you for fruit. We pray this, that you might get all glory. We pray this so that we could only boast in you. Amen.